Are you a sneakerhead? Yeah, boy! A baller? Ballin'. Want to know about the hottest brands you can lace up and run with? Well, get ready, because we got all the details right here. Nice take by James. Oh, he stops! LeBron James puts it down in the face of James Johnson. Kevin Durant way outside. Delivers! Kevin Durant from downtown. It's a six-point game. And it goes off to Kobe. Good to ride Kobe underneath. Puts his nose on the line again. Makes the basket. He's fouled. Oh, what a play. And Kobe, after he was fouled, after the ball nestled in the net, he waved to a cameraman down in front. Says, take my picture, baby. Sixers running the break. Iverson accelerating to the jam. It's kicks and bricks where we got game on the streets, and on the court. Money's gotta be the shoes. Shoes, shoes, shoes. shoes. You sure it's not the shoes? I'm sure, Mars. Money's gotta be the shoes. And here's your host, Jamel Cutler. What up, what up? Welcome to a new edition of Kicks. Today we have Jesse Washington, a writer from The Undefeated and the co-author of the book, I Came as a Shadow. What's up, Jesse? How you doing? I'm great, man. Thanks for having me, Jamel. No problem, man. Like, um, can you talk about what inspired you to chronicle John Thompson's um, story? Well, he was an inspiring figure to me when I was growing up. As a young teenager, I watched him and his teams dominate college basketball. But more importantly, I watched him and his teams set a standard for black excellence, for being proud black men of achievement. And I admired that. So when Coach Thompson asked me if I was interested in writing his book, uh, I was absolutely uh, thrilled to be selected by him. Oh, that must have been like something to have like John Thompson handpick you to like tell his life story. Well, you know, I, it was like a competition. It was like a tryout, <laughs> you know, oh. and then and once he picked me, um, you know, I was on the team, but I knew I could get cut at any moment or sent to the bench or transferred yeah. out. <laughs> um, but no, it was it was definitely, you know, it was it was humbling when he chose me. I felt a large sense of responsibility that this is this story is so unique, so important that I have to do a great job with this. I have to help him tell the story that he wants to tell. And fortunately, we were able to do that. Like, can you talk about like the writing process and like having John around, like to help contribute to the book, like right before he passed? Sure. So we started two years before Coach Thompson passed away, and we would meet at Georgetown, and we would usually meet for a couple hours a day, a couple days a week. And there was no small talk. There was no, "Hey Jesse, how's your kids doing? How's the weather?" He was about that business, and he had a lot of big picture philosophies and thoughts and ideas that he wanted to convey about the importance of things, about how the world works, and also some of his experiences and how it related to the greater struggle of Black people. And my job was to come every day with questions, with structure, with a format, and fit his thoughts into that. So that's generally how we work together. Um, but, you know, I mean, I got to spend two years spending hours and hours talking to John Thompson. So it was an amazing experience. You know, besides like putting the pen to the paper, like what was those two years like, like spending time with um, Coach Thompson? Man, well, let me just tell you about what kind of guy he was. Um, fiercely intelligent, very proud, 
very analytical, always seeing things three and four levels beyond what the average person would see. At the same time, he was really funny. Like we laughed a lot. We had a lot of good laughs, a very caring person, someone who cared deeply about a lot of things. So to be around one of your elders like that day after day after day, I would be remiss if I didn't soak up some of that and try to, you know, get some of that knowledge and use it. And I have, and I applied in my own work to this day. So I had to constantly be thinking and thinking ahead when we were in these sessions and planning for the next question, planning how to get him to explore things that he might not have thought of. So it was the most rewarding kind of work imaginable, but it was definitely work. What was Coach Thompson like at home, like away from the cameras, away from, you know, the book stuff? Like, what was he like as a friend and as a man that you see? Mm. Well, you know, it's funny. It would be tough for me to characterize our relationship as a friendship. We were definitely friendly. You know, it was more like coach and player, to be honest with you. <laughs> Only he was coaching me through the process of helping him write his book. And I had something that he needed in terms of my writing ability, but it was definitely, he was the coach. He was in control. So we were friendly. I think that he liked me as a person. I hope he did. I think he would have got rid of me if he didn't. But there were a lot of times where it really felt like I was playing on his team, which was a great honor for me as somebody who loves basketball, but was never good enough to even come close to playing for Georgetown. So the what he was like was really i would have to say it was really like he was a coach and he had that persona and his persona was really about teaching so he had a very strong teaching persona and even though i wasn't getting the you know he was teaching lessons through the book and i was helping him convey that but i'm getting the lessons along the way so he was just a cool guy man so cool so funny so insightful just saying things to make you think um and occasionally after we had worked for a few hours, we would sit around in the in the Georgetown basketball office because we met on Georgetown's campus. And he liked to just chill out, man, with 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 the, the fellas, you know, and I would sit to the side and just observe. And so Patrick Ewing would come by. His son Ronnie would be there. He had a security guard who was with him for many years named Mr. Greg Roberts. Mr. Greg would be there. Um, People, players would come by, he would crack jokes. And it goes back to how he grew up. Coach Thompson grew up at Boys Club Number Two in Washington, D.C. with a lot of older black men who he called Yes Sir and Mr. Jabbo and Mr. Wyatt and Mr. Butler. And he loved nothing more than to just go down to Boys Club Number Two and spend all day sitting there in the bleachers. You know, just chilling, man, watching people play, watching the games, not recruiting, just being in the element of black folks. And so I did get to spend some time with him in those type of environments. And it was just the coolest thing, man. He was the, he was the coolest dude in those moments. And I was just, uh, to see him let his guard down and, and curse his son out with so much love in his heart, it was a great thing. His profanity was legendary. That was, the, that was the good thing about being around coach is just to get him see him, to hear him use profanity in such a poetic and African-American uh <laughs> slashing and joking and cutting every way you could use the word mf or he would use it man and uh it was a it was an awesome thing to see was that his favorite um curse word what that's this is his favorite word in the english language <laughs> forget about profanity you know he definitely you know he was a man who enjoyed 
his contradictions. Mm -hmm. He enjoyed the fact that here he is at um, the prestigious Georgetown University amongst all these priests, and he would MF him to death, you know? <laughs> and, and a lot of the priests, actually, you'd be surprised, a lot of the priests would, would MF you too. Um, and so he enjoyed that contradiction. He enjoyed keeping people off balance. And he enjoyed surprising people with his positions or the things he would think about or the way he would approach topics. So that was one thing that he used. But he was also very cognizant of his audience and when to use it and when not. And so we, we used it very sparingly in the book. Mm -hmm. But when he does drop one in the book, you could feel it. <laughs> like you didn't hold back in the book at all, which is like how um, Coach Thompson coached as a coach. Um, was like the no holds barred way of your writing kind of like mimic his um, coaching style, would you say? I tried to just mimic him as a person and I tried to really channel him. The biggest goal for me personally with this book was to make sure it sounded like him. And when Coach Thompson goes in, he goes in. And so myself as the writer, I and, and I empathize with his positions. I believed in what he was saying. So it was easy for me as the writer to channel his language, his voice, to, to, to go to the tape and to put things together in a way that was just him he felt strongly about things. He was passionate, very passionate. And he was, like you said, he was not afraid to let that show. He wasn't gonna quiet down just because you might take it some sort of way. So, you know, um, the, the, that, that feeling of him going in and going hard comes from the, the depth of his conviction in the things he was saying, he was saying. When you know, there were like so many gems in the book. And one thing that um I took away and one thing I was surprised about that he was a gambler and um <laughs> and he had action with Maya Lansky. Like, can you like expound on that a little bit more? Absolutely. I'm gonna take a pause for the cause and say, if you're just tuning in, this is I Came as a Shadow, the autobiography of John Thompson. Get it in your local black bookstore, your local independent bookstore. And if all else fails on Amazon. Um, so yeah. Coach Thompson got turned on to the slot machines when he was a little boy because his pops liked to play the slots. And it he and and that's where he got it from. And he he loved the slot machines. And he part of it was that he was a public figure. Everywhere he went, he was in demand. And so he said, I can go to the casino and the slot machines don't talk to me and I don't talk to them. You know. So it was like a respite that he had. Um, and he loved Las Vegas. He was a Vegas dude and he had very close friends who did time for Meyer Lansky, you know what I'm saying? And that was one of the contradictions that, that Coach Thompson, you know, that we talk about. I mean, this is a man who met six presidents and was down with the, with the, with the peripheral post-jail mob in Vegas, you know what I'm saying? So uh, he, was, he, he loved the gamble and there's a great story in the book about how he, he befriended uh, a, a casino owner in Vegas, this guy named uh, Michael Gaughan, and he owned casino hotels. And they were walking through the airport and he looked at the slots in the airport out there at, at, at the Vegas airport and said, yeah, man, how many black people own some of these slots? And he was like, none. He said, then I want one. And he went about getting one. He was sponsored by his friend. He went through all the proper background checks. And then when the, when the media and the NCAA uh, found out they made a big old deal about it, even though it was perfectly legal 
even though he wasn't gambling on any games, he wasn't in, didn't own any part of a casino. He just wanted to own some slot machines at the airport. So again, part of it was he liked to push boundaries. He wanted to go outside what you thought he should be confined to. And that was one piece of evidence towards that. Man, I could imagine Coach Thompson and Michael Jordan playing like poker or something together. (laughs) I could only imagine. You know what I'm saying? There's pictures. Well, first of all, they're great friends. They're great friends. And they really respect each other. And Coach Thompson has a lot of wonderful things to say about Jordan, despite the fact that Jordan hit that jumper at Carolina as a freshman to snatch a title from from coach. So uh, they, they love each other. And there's some photos that I saw of them together where I'm like, man, I would have liked to be a fly on the wall in that room. Um, and uh, and they definitely had some good times. I don't know. You know, I don't know if uh, if Jordan is on the slots. I'm not sure if Coach Thompson gets on the poker table, but I know that when they got together out in Vegas, it was definitely popping with them cats. <laughs> like to me, this um, to me, I came as a shadow is like the basketball version of the autobiography of like of Malcolm X, like both were books that was told by someone else. And I'm like, what do you want people to take away from the book? Well, first of all, thank you very much for that comparison. That's a rare company to be in. Alex Haley, who wrote Malcolm X's story and just, you know, I do believe that there are similarities in the impact and, and importance of John Thompson and Malcolm X. And what coach wants people to take away from the book is to use your mind to succeed. You know, we're here on a podcast, two black men putting stuff on the internet. Coach would love that because this is an intellectual conversation. And coach, you know, loved basketball, loved athletics, loved coaching, but for a higher purpose. So coach wanted people to take that higher purpose away from his book. What kind of impact are you going to make on the world with your mind? When you're done playing basketball, what contribution are you going to make to the world? And I think that he really wanted all his readers to think about those things for themselves as well. Those are the main things that he wanted folks to take away. You know, did you learn anything about yourself while writing the book? Because usually people, like, they'll discover something about themselves that they didn't know that they had. Hmm. Well, I think that I found out that I had given other people too much credit for my own success, you know, and the things that I worked and earned for, the things that I worked for and earned, what I learned from coach was that you don't have to be thankful or grateful for getting those things because you earned them. And too many times as black folks, we are overly thankful or grateful for things that we're supposed to have because God wanted us to have them, our freedom, equal rights, things like that. And so that's one of the biggest takeaways that I had from uh, the biggest insights that coach gave me into my own self. You know, um, I came as a shadow, like I learned more about Coach Thompson from the book than like anything, like from any press conference, from any like documentary that I've seen on him. And it's kind of like the same thing with Malcolm X. Like I learned a whole lot from reading his book after he passed. And like for me, like, now I'm trying to, um, you know, kind of honor people while they're here because of that. Well, thank you, man. I think that that's a tremendous uh, observation that you have there. And there's something different about a book. And I love documentaries. and I love interviews and press conferences. But there's something special 
and weighty and uh, substantial about a book where someone can give you everything that they need to say at length. And so I really encourage all of our folks out there to, to read more. Um, it's becoming something of a lost art uh, because we're bombarded with all this other information and it's easier to sit back and watch something. And again, you know, I'm a aspiring documentarian myself. And so I respect that medium as well. But, you know, this book is Coach John Thompson live and direct saying exactly what he wants to say with basically no filter because I was not a filter. I was a conduit. Every single word in this book, Coach Thompson wanted it to be there. There is nothing that escaped him. And we went over it literally word by word before he passed away. And I think that that's one of the things that makes a book like that special. A documentary, it's being interpreted through the director, you know, a press conference, they're taking things out of context. This is 1000% John Thompson. You know, I was looking at some old footage, like just to do research for this interview. And I seen he played for the Celtics like way back in the back in the days in the 1960s. And he had like Red Auerbach and he also had um, Bill Russell. And he's seen how Red used Bill. And it's kind of the same way how he used Patrick Ewan at Georgetown. Like, do you think if it wasn't for that stint in Boston, like, like we wouldn't be talking about Coach Thompson as as we are today? I believe that's accurate. Yes, because he learned so much from those two people that you mentioned in particular. And not to, you know, discount any of his other teammates that he mentions in the book, Casey Jones, mm -hmm. Satch Sanders, you know, and on and on, who we also learned from. But Red and Bill were two, uh, Red and, uh, and Mr. Russell were two tremendously influential figures. Bill Russell is a proud black man who took nothing from nobody. You know, let's not forget, Bill Russell refused to sign autographs. People were like, who does he think he is? You know, <laughs> no, nah, I'm not signing autographs. Um, and then Red, all the stuff that people criticize Coach for, controlling everything, uh, you know, keeping people off guard, keeping people on defensive, yelling at referees. <laughs> he learned it from Red Arback, you know, so Red Arback and the Celtics is his coaching DNA. Now, it also has to be said that, that John Thompson was quite an excellent basketball player, was All-American in Providence, averaged 26 and 15. You know what I'm saying? So the fact that he had to sit the bench behind Bill Russell, he didn't like it, but he dealt with it. You know, and that's another thing that he really transferred over to his Georgetown teams, because when they had that great run and they won it, people said the best team in the country is Georgetown. The second best team is Georgetown's bench. And he said a lot of times he had to stop practice because the subs was whipping up on the starters. So the way that he had to sacrifice and deal with it to be on a championship team, he imparted that to his players. Michael Jackson was one of the coldest cats in the game at the point, coming out of high school and even college. He could have averaged 20, 25 easy. This is according to Coach Thompson. But he dialed all that down for the good of the team. So that's another thing that he got for, that Coach got from the Celtics. You know, one thing I respect about Coach and um, Mr. Bill Russell is that um, they both pissed. They both pissed off white. They both pissed off white people, and um, and I can always appreciate that. Oh man, a hundred percent. And uh, you know, I would say that Coach Thompson, he was just being him. And if you asked him that, if he was here right now, he'd say, "Hey, man, I was just being me. If you didn't like it, that was your problem." You know, he didn't change who he was or feel the need to accommodate their insecurities, you know, and yes, 
it pissed a lot of people off because then as now, just stating some simple, actual truthful facts is enough to piss off some people. Um, so that's what he did, man. And that's really why we admired him. One of the reasons why we admired him so much is he said the things that we all knew were true that people tried to deny. And he said it in such an eloquent and intelligent way. There was no, you know, arguing with it. And, and then he would just look at you and bounce. <laughs> like, I'm not even going to stick around for the rest of this, man. Uh, he represented us and our issues to such a strong extent. That's one of the reasons why he was who he was. You know, when Coach won the national title with Georgetown in 1984, like someone in someone in post game asked him about being the first black coach to win the national um, championship, and John said, and I'm, and I'm paraphrasing because I'm not really sure of the exact quote, but he basically said, um, in 1984, it shouldn't be the first black at anything, and even by like 1984 standards, I think that's crazy. In 2021, we're still talking about you know the first black coach here or the first black that did this. Very much so. And coach was acutely aware of that, that we've really gone backwards in some extent. And, you know, he was offended by the, by people bringing up the first black coach, because he said that brings up the fact that y'all prevented all these other great black coaches from getting opportunity. I'm not the first black coach with the ability to win a national championship. I'm the first one who had the opportunity. And that sort of made, you know, that fact made him angry. And, and there were tons of incredible black coaches before him, Cal Irvin, John McLendon. John McLendon like invented the fast break, invented the full court press, not credited for it in any way, shape or form, you know, big house gains. So he was offended by that. And Coach Thompson would, however, even though he was definitely unhappy with the state of opportunities for black people in coaching and college basketball, he would be very pleased to see this hiring cycle that we're going through right now. Because if I'm not mistaken, more than half of the of the jobs in men's division one basketball have been filled by black coaches, including uh, Hubert Davis at North Carolina, which is is probably, you know, one of, if not the best jobs in college basketball. And now brother has it. But Hubert better win. That's what coaches say. Yeah, he better win. and He better win quick. Otherwise, they're going to run him out and they ain't going to hire another brother for a long time. Yeah, we're going to touch on Hubert in a minute. But um, I want to go back to what you said about. John Mc, John McClendon and Big House Gaines, you know, mm -hmm. like I'm surprised they never won anything. But I guess that was I guess they were a victim to the times because if you well, look let me, at let it, me stop you right there. Let me stop you there because they did they won they won the championships that they were allowed to compete for, right? right. And it, uh, and Cal Irvin like NAIA championships, MEACs or whatever the black conferences were called. You know, they excelled until they hit that ceiling that was placed on them. And they learned the, and they learned the um, game of basketball from the guy who invented basketball. So that's crazy. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. John McClendon was a student at Kansas when James Naismith was there. Um, and But there were no black people allowed on the basketball team. So John McClendon was not a player. And John McClendon was a little guy anyway. But you know, uh, John McClendon was probably smarter at basketball than James Naismith. What did Coach say in his book? Um, he said the Wright brothers didn't teach people how to fly. <laughs> so, so John McClendon took basketball to a level that James Naismith uh, never conceived of. You know, and kind of going back to to Hubert, like you said, like I really do hope that he succeeds because if he doesn't, 
you know, there probably won't be another black coach at UNC for another 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. I, I would, that is probably true. Um, I do see some signs of progress, but in general, it's tough for, you know, our successes and failures are viewed as a referendum on what all black people can do. Whereas if a white guy comes and fails, oh, that's just him. And that's how it should be. You know, Coach Thompson voices it very eloquently in his book. He says, black folks won't be equal until we have the right not to be successful. Because there's lots of white folks out here who can fail and get another chance and another chance. And that's fine. We're not mad at them for getting those chances, but give us those chances too. That's what he's talking about. So let's see what, what Coach Davis can do over there at UNC. You know, one of the highlights of the um, press conference, well, I don't wanna say highlight, but um, one of the funny, one of the most funny moments about that press conference was when he said he was proud to have a white wife. Like, what, like, like, how do you feel about that? Um, that he said that? That little tidbit, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how that came up. Like, if he just brought it up spontaneously or no. if um, someone asked no. him, like, what's up with the white wife? <laughs> <laughs> nah, nah, he was saying he was, um, that he was happy to be the first black coach at, um, well, he didn't say black, he said Afro-American or African-American hmm. at, at UNC. And then like towards the end of that clip, he um, basically said he's glad to have a white wife with biracial children. Huh, very yeah. interesting. Okay, yeah. so that's, that's so, so yeah, so let's get into that for a minute. All right, so first of all, man, um, whoever people uh, fall in love with and want to marry, that's all good. I encourage that. Mm -hmm. Facts. And yet, at the same time, there are definitely historical issues due to the way that we have been uh, lined up against one another, where um, Black women justifiably often feel that when Black men choose white women, it's an implicit rejection of them, because white women have been held up as the standard of beauty. This is what we're supposed to, you know, desire. And so it is hurtful in some ways, particularly when very successful athletes and coaches and rich black men choose white women to marry and to have children with because black women have been rejected for so long, have been told that they're less than for so long. I'm gonna put in a quick plug for uh, the recent undefeated special on ESPN Plus, Dear Black Woman, where we're paying homage and tribute to, uh, to the black women who have carried us for so long. So, you know, it's still a touchy subject and a lot of people want to act like it doesn't matter. It does matter still, you know? And um, I mean, for example, if Barack Obama had been married to a white woman, he never would have been elected president. If he had been married to a light-skinned woman, he would have had a harder time because Obama's uh, pass to the cookout was already under some scrutiny just because, you know, he was this Harvard guy from, from Hawaii and how black is he really? So. You know, we're dealing with a lot of trauma in our community, man. We're dealing with a lot of pain and a lot of centuries of built up racism. And those those uh, those things are still with us. I fell victim to it earlier in my career. And, um, you know, in terms of having attitudes about women and skin tone and things like that, that I didn't realize had been brainwashed into. me. And fortunately, um, I uh, was uh, found and rescued by a patient and loving black woman you know, who, who could help educate me on the way things should be. So I know this is a long answer. You know, I'm surprised that Hubert Davis brought that up. I find it rather interesting and I, I'm gonna go look that up. 
Um, okay. But uh, he's still a black man, and his kids are still so, black. You could have a white wife all you want, but hey, if you know, if you if you got a black parent, you still black. <laughs> yep. And and because of that, like we have to love them and accept them, despite. Hundred percent. I mean, the colorism within our community is crazy. You know what I'm saying? And like, there's there's all this stuff about who's uh, who's better, who's lighter, who's darker. What those characteristics really mean? There were some really funny, funny memes. Shout to Josiah Johnson, the great, on Twitter for the national championship game because you know stereotypically Baylor. All right, I'm gonna say it. It was it was a little bit like you know the field Negroes versus the house Negroes a little bit because Gonzaga had like somebody tweeted Gonzaga's players look like they were breastfed and went to private school <laughs> and people were putting up all these memes that, you know with like the I mean you know it, it was it was rather funny but it goes to you know light-skinned ball players have a stereotype you know what I'm saying? Oh, they finesse, they soft, you know, they, and, and then the dark skin brothers, oh, they dogs, you know? So we still have, are dealing with this legacy of oppression within our own community. I'm gonna bring it back to the book. Coach Thompson loved this story, this metaphor for black thought. And he said there was a dog chained up in the yard and everybody will walk by and the dog would chase him and try to bite him. And then the chain would yank him up short and the dog couldn't bite him. And one day they took the chain off the dog and he chased people to, right to where the chain used to stop him. And the dog stopped right there because he didn't think he could go any farther. And he said, that's the way a lot of black people are conditioned to place limits on ourselves. So we've been conditioned to have these, these uh, rather, quite frankly, idiotic distinctions between skin tone and light skin and dark skin, man. Hopefully we'll get past it. You know, like I had no idea that skin tone and all that was a problem until I got to college, man. That's when like my eyes really opened up to a lot of that stuff. And it's still something that like I'm kind of dealing with today, just like you. Yeah, it's crazy, man. You know what I discovered when I got to college? I didn't know that there was such a thing as bougie black people. And I was very confused. <laughs> I was like, wait, who are these people? Why are they <laughs> acting like this? Like, I didn't know any bougie black people, like black people with money, nice cars, you know, you know, stuff like that. I was like, what? This kid is a freshman at college and got a red Mercedes? Like, how does that work? And like sort of the way they acted, it was like strange to me. Um, so I really had to, and, and then I was like, what's this Jack and Jill thing? Like all the bougie, like I'm a little suspicious of that. So um, that was what I discovered when I went to college. But you know what, man? The black community is beautiful in its diversity. There's no one way to be black. So I welcome all styles of blackness, all modes of black thought, even my black Republican people, y'all can come home too. Just don't bring no raisins back with the potato salad and we good. <laughs> you know, I I hope Kanye West come back home, man, because I was, <laughs> he needs to come back. <sighs> he does, man. And and I hope that I hope that people are ready to welcome him back and forgive him um, because that's what it's all about, man. We all have needed forgiveness at some point in our life. I know I have. And I've done a lot of things that, you know, I really regret. And, um, uh, but, you know, God is the ultimate forgiver. And hopefully we can reflect some of his attributes in our own attitudes towards those of us who go astray, like, yay. Um, and, and, and I hope he comes back. I hope he gets his life together. And I hope he makes some more bangers, man, because this dude is one of the most gifted musicians, 
that we've ever had. And I need some more heat from my man. And, and it's really not, you know, like that's sort of been, you know, musicians are artists and they express what they're feeling and that my man is mixed up. So come on, yay. Come on back. We, we're here for you, man. What's your best Kanye album? Cause my, like my personal favorite is um, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. That was a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece, but I couldn't rock with it because um, that was right when he started really getting, his life started going a little crazy as evidenced in the title. And the things he was rapping about on there was very, if you really go word for word, it's troubling. And I can't like, you know, I, I can't really like that. That to me was upsetting. It is a masterpiece. Um, and it's also started, I, that was when it really started to be very self-centered. I wrote a review of that album uh, when it came out. And I think I said, he's like a Picasso who only paints self-portraits. So that was the beginning of that. So my favorite, uh, you know, I'm a little hazy on the album titles, but like, I think it was like the second one and the third one, those were the ones. The one, with, what was the album with Gone on it? That that cut that he did with Consequence and, and, and Cameron. I think like, that was the second one. Yeah, so the second one, the third one, you know, those were those were my favorites. But I mean, he still will sneak up on us now. And he, I mean, he's one of the greats, man. Like it or hate it, he's one of the greats. And I do believe he has more great music in him. And his next album is going to be fire, man. I just I'm not up on it. What's you know, it, what, oh you whatever it is. What did you think? Yeah. Did you listen to the Sunday? You know what the Sunday service man or whatever that church album they put out. I was really highly anticipating that. I like some church music, but it didn't have that. Like it, it was like I, I needed some more knock to it. Like I needed some more beats behind it. And th there was you know it was just a little too uh, vocal, you know. Um, and, and I needed a, him to do a little bit more, in my opinion. So it was cool and everything. I liked the content, but I needed some more uh behind some of them. Like that would have been a killer combination to me that he really could have put like some, it wasn't really like hip hop, you know? Like I wanted a hip hop church album and, and I felt a little let down. And so then I went and I listened to, uh, what's that, Let the Trap Say Amen a couple of times and, and rocked out to that. My man, Zaytoven. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and uh, who's the MC? Who's the Christian MC? Who's who's super nice on that one? Uh, dang, I can't believe I'm spacing out on his name from Atlanta. Anyway, shout uh, to Zaytoven. You know, speaking of church, DMX, he needs our prayers right now, man. I really hope he pulls through. I do too. Um, to see DMX go down the Christian path was really interesting. Um, and I was glad because it gave him something to hold on to. But yet and still, as he went down that path, if we followed him and listened to him on some of the podcasts, you know, we were still worried. It was still evident that he was in the grip of these drugs. Um, I think he did the um, uh, the drink champs and his voice just sounded, We that's when we really started to get worried. So yes, we are praying for DMX and uh, and he, he needs he needs God's mercy right now. And I hope it's coming to him. You know, kind of going back to that drink chance episode, what you said about his voice, it kind of reminded me of, you know, that of Tupac's last picture in that BMW. Like they they both sounded gone. Well, mm. well Tupac looked gone and like DMX, like I, I think he knew, you know. Mm. You know, that's about to happen. Yeah, I just felt some sort of way when I thought about that picture with Pac in that in that car and it did, it was a very eerie photo. 
And, um, you know, man, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for my, for my brothers and sisters struggling with drugs. My father, uh, who was a brilliant artist and, and did a lot of the work that's behind me, um, struggled with drugs and was an absolutely brilliant individual. And a lot of times the artistic talents and the creative talents um, come from a place that leaves them more susceptible to fall into the grip of those things. So, you know, a lot of people look down on it or make fun of it. I would never do that, man. Um, so I, I, I respect DMX and I respect how he struggled through it. And I really, you know, um, you know, that versus that he did with Snoop, that was a reminder, man. We got some vintage DMX in that thing, man. And just a reminder of his charisma, his personality, his bars, you know, my man could spit. And so, you know, prayers up for DMX, man. You know, um, are you working on anything new for the undefeated or do you have any new novels in the works? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, um, right now for the undefeated, I'm covering the Derek Chauvin trial. And like a lot of us, I'm, I, I came into it very worried that this police officer who um, is charged with murder in the death of George Floyd would be acquitted. And I want to really watch this trial closely. And if, God forbid, he is acquitted, really figure out where things went wrong. What's wrong with our justice system that we can't even put this man away? Um, you know, so far, uh, they're about a week into the trial, about eight or nine days. And there are reasons for hope. There are reasons for concern. So that's what I'm working on right now. I'll be in Minnesota for in Minneapolis for the conclusion of that trial. And um, we have lots of good specials that we've been working on with the with the. Uh, with the undefeated, I mentioned Dear Black Woman, uh, which is on ESPN, A Love Letter to Black Women, sorry, which is on ESPN Plus. Um, I do have some book projects coming up, some heat, can't disclose it yet, but you know, it should uh, it should get the people excited some more. Another book project that, that hopefully will be announced soon. I'm gonna tease y'all with that. And then I love fiction, I'm glad you asked about that. I did write a novel um, uh, a while back called Black Will Shoot about the underbelly of the rap game um and i have more aspirations for fiction in the future all right so i want to thank you for joining us today like i came as a shadow is one of my favorite books of of the last year and it kind of documented one of the most important basketball stories in um, recent history jamel thanks man i really enjoyed the conversation i enjoy what you do man keep rocking <laughs>